Hello, I'm Dana Brooks of Facing Brooks Law Offices, and you are back for another edition of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plan. Hey, everybody, it is Dana Brooks from Facing Brooks Law Offices, and you are back for another edition of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plant. And I am so excited about our guest today. This is a friend of mine from going way back uh, when I first started getting involved in this community and and caring about the the place I lived and wanting to have my voice heard and and, uh, and and meet some other people who are also enthusiastic about it. So we have got the unique Christy. Henry. She is here today with us, y'all. Uh, she is a realtor. She is president, I believe, of Kingdom Realty. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Kingdom First okay. Realty. Yes, ma'am. So first, let's welcome her. And do uh, you need Christy? Tell us your story. Um, well, I um, came to Florida State because my dad wouldn't let me go to Hampton. And um, <laughs> And um, I was glad I did when I came here as a Seminole. um, It was my definite second choice. Um, I came to Tallahassee and, you know, back then, because I know I I look way younger than I am. um, Back then, you know, Tallahassee's Florida State campus was a little bit isolated, right? So there was Florida State and then there was like FAMU over here, and then there was like the rest of Tallahassee. So there was no town and gown. There was no attempt to like, you know, um, integrate student life into community, you know, priority in the way that we know now. Um, so I, I stayed in my little, you know, vacuum of Florida State and um, and and pretty much did okay. And then um, my sister uh, was killed in a vehicular accident. Oh and um, I flunked out of school because emotionally, traumatically, I just, you know, Not I probably should have left school. Um, and so I ended up going home and staying home for a year and a half. And then I came back to Tallahassee. Now, I want to put a stick in that because the whole time I was home, my FSU family was reaching out, checking up on me, making sure that I came back to school right. And so I want to make sure that that was understood. So even though we didn't have the town and gown, the heart was kind of there. Um, and when I came back to Tallahassee, you know, I got it all back together. I went to TCC. I didn't go straight back to FSU. Okay. Went to TCC. TCC is the bomb. Yes. Um, I, I just want TCC people to really. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, I tell people that all the time. TCC is the bomb. I took statistics at FSU and got like a total F and took statistics at TCC and got an A. So right. TCC is like the bomb. So all when about TCC, Yes, 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 yes. And so when I came back to Tallahassee, I didn't live in the silo of FSU because I wasn't an FSU student. I was going to TCC and working, um, you know, regular folk job. And I ended up doing um, a project over in Southside at Bond Elementary um, called the AmeriCorps um, Learn and Serve Project. It was facilitated by Leon County Schools at the time. And I ended up spending a whole year of my life working and serving at Bond Elementary School and the adjacent community centers with William Service Center and Walker Ford. Um, did some literacy work over at the Holton Streets Department in the afternoons teaching adults literacy. Um, did a lot of environmental justice projects. Living and working in the South Side changed my life. Yeah. Um, it helped, service made me. Um, and learning that community, understanding our community and learning to value who we are and receiving love, receiving restorative love 
from Southside residents, from the elders of that community who put me to work. They didn't pat me on the back. They didn't, you know, constant me. They put me to work and they helped me explore my potential. They helped me learn how to strengthen my writing skills. They helped me learn how to strengthen my leadership, servant leadership skills. And that's what you see today. You see the product of what those folks in the South Side did for me during a very vulnerable time in my adult, young adult development. Ended up going from TCC, you know, honor student from TCC over back to FSU. Finished FSU as a political science graduate. Um, fell in love with a with a local because that's what they tell you not to do. Fall in love with a local. I did, <laughs> <laughs> and people don't believe me when I say that. They say that, don't they? Don't you? Don't. Oh, I, okay, I see somebody shaking their head. Um, <laughs> they tell you don't do that, and I did. And he was a barber who ended up being a broker, a mortgage broker who ended up becoming a real estate agent and then a real estate broker, all before the age of twenty six. And so I ended up kind of getting on that train because that was a good one, and. Um, spending my political science and um, issues advocacy focus, nonprofit, um, so advocacy focus into the real estate realm. And that's when it all began to make sense for me. So as we opened our realty, uh, we went to Keller Williams first. We worked at, uh, as agents with Keller Williams, and then we opened our own brokerage, Kingdom First Realty, and we've been in business for 19 years this year. And um, we are a full service real estate uh, brokerage that operates from the capital to the coast. Um, and, and that means the coast of Jacksonville and the coast of uh, Pensacola. And we try to make sure that we work all opportunities and refer and work with other professionals in those markets as need be, because that's how you leverage um, your capacity to build. So we have been really, really blessed. We also manage over $21 million worth of assets of real estate on behalf of other owners through our property management business. Um, and so we have been truly a blessed um, enterprise that has gone through its hoops. And um, for all of y'all who are married to your business partner, stay encouraged. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's work it, worth it when you're building together. And on the ninth of the, on the eighth of this month, we just celebrated our nineteenth wedding anniversary. Wonderful, wonderful. That's great. I love your story. I love yeah. everything about it. I want to um, I want to talk to our panel. We've got some wonderful people on today. We've got my law partner Kimmy Hogan. We've got our PR director, Kia Thomas. We've got our, um, what are we calling you now, Denisha? Uh, in charge of everything client-based, uh, client happy maker, um, uh, director of client care, uh, Denisha's Hill here with us. But you know, I wanna talk, I don't wanna get too far off of this because uh, Kia brought this up. She brought us a guest one time who talked about gentrification through climate change, which mm-hmm. is something I had honestly ne- it never occurred to me, but why wouldn't it? You know, but it all stems from economic development. Uh, all mm-hmm. education, in my view, does. So that is something I see you speak up about on social media a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Keith, I want to flip it over to you and see if you've got some questions, you know, given how uh, our guest, uh, Christique Henry, how she feels about, yes, we've got to grow. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, she could come back to it. But my my uh, understanding of, of Christique's social media posts are, yes, I understand we have to grow and we have to create opportunity, but you can't wipe everybody out, man. You know, mm-hmm. there's got to be a balance and the people need to be heard and they don't mm-hmm. have the money that usually gets their voices heard. So somebody's got to step up. Um, Kia, what are your thoughts? You, you're you're big on uh, addressing gentrification. Absolutely. Um 
we definitely covered this. Um, it, it's it's being hard hit definitely in the Miami area because they're moving those people out from those areas into other areas. Um, houses are being sold for almost $5 million and you're sitting there like, mm-hmm. city, $5 million, really? Um, I say that to say to roll into you being a communitarian. And I think that I, I want you to kind of roll into your advocacy for that, um, because a lot of people don't understand what that is. That's even not even understanding what socialism is, because people get confused about that. And this kind of rolls into all of that, making sure that there's room for everyone to eat, so to speak. So if you can kind of expound on your communitarianism, that would be yeah. great. So, I love it. You know, and honestly, would you do this first? Would you define gentrification? Not everybody is hip to this. Okay. Um, it's it it has two terms, it has two definitions. Okay. As we apply it socially, it has to do with um the the displacement based upon market factor of indigenous residents or indigenous inhabitants of an area. And those are due to market controls, whether it be through mm-hmm. the rise in value of an area or the rise in the cost of rent of an area, um, or just in essence, the rise of the cost of living overall that causes um, the indigenous, the indigenous um, uh, residents or inhabitants of an area to have to relocate yeah. due to some factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it has two definitions because I'm not plus or minus on the on the term itself. I think there's such a thing as positive gentrification, right? Where you have an area that has had value repression through public policy and through different instruments over time. And even though once infrastructure follows and advocacy breeds investment, then of course you have that that natural that natural market response, which is an increase in value. Uh, I always make it similar to like, you know, and this is going to sound real crass. I, I'm almost blocked to say it because somebody might take it and repeat it. But if you see like like a dirty dog somewhere, right, you're going to assign that dog low value. But if you see that mm-hmm. dog dressed up clean with bowls on his head with a, you know, with a chain on that shows mm-hmm. ownership, then you're going to look at that. You're going to have different mm-hmm. uh, assumptions about that dog than you are about the dirty dog. You know, you may see the dirty dog and say, oh, he might be raven, he might be this, he might be dead, he might have the fleas, he might, be, he might have all these things, right? But he's just dirty, right? Whereas when you see this same dog trussed up with the proper, you know, um, recruitments, with the proper dress, you're going to have a different perspective of that dog. And I hate to use dog because it's sad, but I have to use like the, the, the thing that jars people. Um, Southside as a community always has had value. I'm going to use that as an example. The problem is it's never had the kind of infrastructure that really attracts value added components to it. And those things, unfortunately, because of the market we have here in Tallahassee, which is largely government based. Let's talk a little bit about our economy, economy, as people like to say, talk a little about our economy. It's, it's, a, it's highly government based. And when you go to other places, they don't have. And I know you, Damien, you've been to Jacksonville all over. You've seen the difference between a corporate um, driven economy and a government driven economy. And that's what we're finding. But guess what? Because of the digitalization of community, 
everybody wants every community to be the same. So they want to have the same expectation of their government. They want to have the same expectation of their public places, their public representation, but you're dealing with diverse dichotomies of economies within communities. And so when we talk about climate change, for instance, in Miami, poor people with that water rolling up, right? Over the years, waste and litter and all those things has caused a shift in the actual natural environment there that is causing and having having negative implications on people being able to live there. Right. In, in some areas, people are they're, they're eroding the natural boundaries where people would find habitation and live, and they're having to relocate to a market that doesn't have enough inventory, it's overpopulated, it's under-resourced, right? So when we talk about climate change, Miami is a good, really, really good example of that, right, in other coastal areas. Well, when you get to Tallahassee, you're dealing with the implications of economies like that that are basically impacted by that climate change. Now they're moving from Miami. Guess where they're coming? Here. And they're coming to Tallahassee because they can buy a house in Tallahassee for a quarter of what they could buy an affordable house in Miami. And so the whole Northwest region is going to experience this. The question is, are we culturally and economically ready for it without the econ economic um, balance in terms of corporate participation, especially in an area that's highly environmental and hasn't been all that friendly to businesses coming here. So we have to have a real conversation, of course, about the external, but also the internal factors that lead to the people level gentrification that happens in communities and fi figure out how we can turn a challenge into an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. No, I love everything you're saying. I want to give uh, our panel some uh, opportunities to talk to you because I got some questions now. I got some follow-ups. But Kimmy Hogan, uh, welcome, and uh, you've been so listening much. to Christique. Uh, what are your thoughts on this topic, and uh, what are your questions? Hey, Christique, I appreciate hey. all the information that you're sharing. Absolutely. Um, I kind of wanted to change the topic a little bit to when you were telling your story. You were talking about how after the death of your sister, you went home for a year and a half and then you came back and really the people in the bond community helped you by challenging you and teaching you how to be a servant leader. Right. And so I, I, I know some folks that are going through big life changes, you know, the loss of a partner, et cetera. And it just resonated with me when you're talking about how you came back from this heartbreak and then you started pouring into other people. And so mm -hmm. I'd like to have you talk about a little bit, how being a servant helped you through that heartbreak and helped you be able to continue on? Excellent question. Excellent question. First of all, Kimmy, you set that up so beautifully. You ought to be like the the, the setter upper for every question. That was just a beautiful setup. I mean, if we were playing volleyball, you would <laughs> killing it. Um, so what happened for me, I hope happens for everyone. Love changes everything. Um, let's let's just keep keep and understand I was the I was the second child in our family to go away to college we were first generational college students and um coming home the shameful um you didn't come home from college unless you were pregnant or you just had done lost your mind I think I had kind of lost my mind a little bit um and I came home and I being a person who is a high achiever um I was very, very depressed. I, I, I look back on it now and I can see 
I was extremely depressed. I spent probably two weeks of my life back at home, really just trying to find a reason to pick myself off the floor. Now, I didn't have a reason to feel that way because I didn't come home to a family that berated me or made me feel any kind of way. It's just, I was trying to sort through my head all these things that that happened in my life with my sister and you know, she having a baby and that she just had a young, young boy. And now he doesn't have a mother. And, you know, it just was a lot for a 20 year old to, to manage mentally, 19 year old to manage mentally. And so um, when I came home, the thing that made the difference for me is my daddy, um, God rest his soul. He sat me down um, after one particular night where I was really low. And he said, baby, I don't care what you do. You will always be my daughter. And I will always believe that you can do whatever you set your mind to do. What a good job. And it was that point that I was able to look at myself in the mirror with a parent who had my back and say, you got to get it together. You got to come back. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going back to church because that's what you do in the South and go to church. And I went to church, you know, got involved in service in church, started mentoring girls. Um, down there in Lakeland, um, in my hometown as I was there, and just started getting back. I got a chance to do some writing for the Lakeland Ledger. I was a sports stringer um, for a while for the Ledger under some amazing uh, journalists there. And then I went on and did some things in journalism in Tampa. I was able to work for a Christian um, radio station down there. So I had a lot of experiences. And one of those experiences was being able to book Tony Dungy when he first got to coaching in um, Tampa Bay. So, you know, being able to experience power like that and having wins, you know, professionally or, you know, at that level on an intern basis as a young person really gave a lot of confidence. So when I came back to Tallahassee, I was ready. And I, I realized that the way forward for me was service. So I was just trying to figure out how somebody caught in a crisis like me could get their life back together. So when I came back to Tallahassee, that's what I saw. I saw opportunities for service and to finish my education. And that's yeah. what I was 100 percent focused on. And, um, you know, that, that's what really was the, the grace for my life. A lot of people that poured into my life that spoke good words over me, that encouraged me, that let me mess up and rebuilt me after the mess up. Because there were some, there were some mistakes when you learn and you, you make mistakes. But it was it was those people that helped me come back that really have made the difference in my life. And so I just spend my adulthood trying to replicate um, what they taught me. That's a great question. Thank you so much for that. You know, I've got a really good girlfriend that's going through uh, a loss similar. And one thing I'm gonna talk to her about is looking for ways to find wins. You know, early on when you're in the grieving process, where can you find mm -hmm. a win professionally or with family or friends or by helping somebody else? Because that hopefully that can spur her on, you know, keep her going. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Ma'am, that's a wonderful question. Denisha Hill. Hello. Hey. You know, I was so, I was so glad I was going to be on this one because I have questions on the realty side, the okay. real okay. estate side. Because somebody like me who bought their house cash, and I'm telling you, if I didn't have Dana, I would have been lost because I, I kind of text her and was like, hey, I found the house. And she was like, hey, don't sign anything until I tell you to, and you better have a realtor. So for somebody that's buying their house out, 
um, for the first time, a first time homeowner, because mm-hmm. I've had a lot of people give me so much advice, things I should have done. I had one person tell me that I shouldn't have paid cash. I should have financed it and went, you know, the mortgage route and let it build my credit. But see, somebody like me, I think of if I don't pay the bank one month, they can come take my house. That's not going to be an option. So mm. what advice would you give to a first time buyer of a home? Do you recommend them buying cash? Do you recommend them trying to do the finance route? What, you know, what advice would you give to somebody like me who don't know, who didn't know anything? I didn't even have my own realtor. I was dealing with the person that was trying to sell me the first house realtor. And when Dana found that out, she was like, oh, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. <laughs> I'm about to call mm-hmm. the chair, girl. <laughs> I didn't know. You know, I was going in really blind. And I'm kind of glad she did because it saved me from a whirlwind. I found out they were trying to sell me a house that was horrible they wouldn't they didn't want to get an inspection and it was horrible so that deal closed quickly but I could have got I could have been got if I didn't have Dana like I said I just text her just to say you know I found and I didn't even think that that was going to be her reaction so if it had to be in my situation could have been different so what would you tell somebody you know to do as a first-time buyer of a home or trying to purchase a home what route should they go and, and Christy, will you do this? Will you explain to them uh, whose interest each person is looking out for, like a listing mm-hmm. agent right. is looking out for whose interest versus a buyer's agent, that sort of thing. Will you explain that? And then talk about from the finance position. Like right now, interest rates are high. You got cash. It's always cool to put cash in an appreciating asset. A mm-hmm. house should appreciate. Don't pay cash for a car unless you're a rich person. That's a mm-hmm. depreciating <laughs> asset. So, so Christy... Help, right. help us sister out. Help us okay. out. Well, I think that, um, first of all, the question you asked is the whole class, like literally. Um, <laughs> it's, it's literally a whole class. The eight-hour one that Tallahassee Lenders Consortium oh, teaches wow. every month. Um, I, I, let me just preface it with this. Your transaction is going to be according to your values. Okay? That's really important to understand. If you got money, you want to pay cash for your house, pay cash for your house. Because culturally, you need to own the way you understand. All right. You need to own in a way that makes you comfortable with your ownership because it's your ownership. If you pay $100,000 for that house and that house is worth $150,000, you pay $100,000 for that house. Now, I will say this. Financing and leveraging is always helpful if the instrument that you utilize actually makes you money over time, right? So if you have $100,000 and you want to use it to buy a house, but you could buy that house with 20 and leverage that additional 80, and then you spend that remaining $80,000 on something that brings value to your life, a business, an enterprise, some type of investment, right? It's a wholly financial decision. So what I would do with the hundred grand and a question mark is I would sit down with the financial advisor first. I would sit down with somebody that understands money. Let me just preface it like this. Realtors don't understand money, all right? Realtors and mortgage lenders sell you money, okay? Mm -hmm. They sell you a house or they sell you money. That's what my role, my role is not to be your financial advisor, okay? My role is to tell you, you can get this house A, B, C way. And by the way, what do you have to be able to help you to get this house? And so um, that that's what my role is. My role is to make sure 
that you can buy this house, that you can buy it in a way that culturally fits who you are. That is that that is a good house for you to buy that a house where you won't have to buy it and lose money. Mm -hmm. A house where mm -hmm. you can make sure that your interests, as she alluded to earlier, are being preserved. A house that we can work through as a real estate professional to make sure that certain expenses associated with the house you're not paying. For instance, if a person already has a survey for that house, guess what? You don't have to buy for four hundred dollars. Right. A survey. All right. And there's other ways and means to build value mm -hmm. in your transaction and save you money. That's the job of your real estate agent, which is why, to the earlier point, it's very important to have someone working for your best interest. Now, I'm going to just be Christique and say sometimes the buyer agent, even if it's a buyer's agent, ain't working for your best interest. Sometimes they're working for their best interest because they're trying to get a closing going. So it's really right. important for you to have a framework for your transaction, to have a Dana you can call or a friend that's already purchased that knows somebody that will tell you the truth or tell you what's going on. Or if you get that gut feeling that something's not right, make sure you call on it because that's your that's your conscience checking you. Um, to make sure that you don't do something that 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 costs you money over the long term. Um, so usually in the state of Florida, they have us give you a disclosure that shows you what our role is in your transaction. That necessary disclosure expired in 2008, but I always get it. There's three types of agency. The first is an exclusive agent. That agent works for you solely for you. Everything they do is for you, but you take on the liability for what they do for you. The second, it meaning that's what they do for you, you can get sued for. It's just as if you're doing. I don't do that kind of representation. I don't believe in liability. Thanks, Dana. <laughs> um, the second type, second type of agency is called a transaction broker. And a transaction broker is a person who can represent the transaction. They have to bring what they call skill, care, and diligence to the table. So they have to know what they're doing. They have to be diligent in what they're doing. And they have to make sure mm -hmm. that what they're doing is fair to all parties involved, right? If they're working for you as your buyer's agent, their job is to make sure they use their professional knowledge to inform you. All right. So with that survey, if I got a cousin who's a surveyor and I'm just trying to get him a deal and I know that person already has a survey, that's not working in your best interest. Right. You, you feel me? If, if mm -hmm. I'm trying to make a trend, because every real estate transaction generates an average of 15 transactions. It generates an, a, a fee for 15 different vendors on average. Think about that. Your real estate transaction paid. 15 people. Nice. Okay. So that's why people love housing is so sexy because it's an economic multiplier, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm not exercising yep. skill, care, and diligence, I'm going to create a transaction for you that's not necessary. I'm going to mm -hmm. let it sit there for a minute. That's why agency understanding is so important. Yep. Um, and then the third one is just non-representative. They don't care nothing about you. They just trying to get a deal done. And, and you know, seasoned right. agents, seasoned people who just trying to get a deal, they don't care about agency. They just trying to make sure their contract is the one that's accepted. Some of them right. will facilitate their own deal. They have that ability. Most folks like you mm -hmm. articulated earlier, they don't. So it's really important, again, for financial issues, if you got 100 grand in the bank, don't come talking to me. I'm not a financial advisor. Right. I know some things, but I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a lot of things, right? I'm not an attorney. I play one on TV, mm -hmm. uh, Dana. I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I don't prepare contracts. We don't have, we don't write contracts. We take a boilerplate 
that attorneys prepare and we give back to clients and we fill those in. We don't mark them up. Mm -hmm. We don't recreate them. We fill out forms for people that are clear and we utilize our skill, care and diligence to do that. Um, but if you have a financial decision to make about how to put your money to realize your goal, work with a person who is licensed in financial advising to be able to do that. That's the first key for someone that has cash. Everybody else mostly probably need a loan. Um, and so mm -hmm. I will say here that looking at the interest rates, unfortunately, we're in a climate where they just shot up. Mm -hmm. So that means that we went from low, low interest rates to almost mid unattainable interest rates. So what does that mean? I had a buyer that was under contract for $200,000 house, right? That's affordable here in Leon County, by the way. There, because of the interest rate, their attainability went down to $183,000. Yeah. Just by a sheer shift in what? The rate. Mm -hmm. So we have to know this. We have to be working with skillful lenders and skillful mortgage brokers that can help coast these difficulties when they come up. And we as real estate agents have to use our skill and diligence to not create unnecessary transactions for you, the buyer, so that you get into a home that you did not feel like you were jilted or you were um, unnecessarily used um, in your transaction framework. You, you know, and I want to follow up on that because... You know, you understand what she's saying. Like if you've got a hundred thousand dollars and twenty thousand can get you into a hundred thousand dollar house with a very affordable principal and interest mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. uh, you may want to do that and spend that eighty thousand, leverage that for something else. Maybe you have an opportunity to invest in something that's going to pay you money. Maybe you have an opportunity to invest in a business or buy something else, a rental property or whatever. And that could make sense. You've just got to look at what your risk level, what your comfort level is with risk and how mm -hmm. likely it is that thing that you're not investing in is going to be fruitful. Because if you invest prudently in real estate, it should, you know, and there's a history to it. I mean, it's not like you just have to guess. No, there's a basis for expecting real estate to produce. That's why people say that's the best way to build wealth in America anyway. I still believe that. Um, I, I think you got to be smart. I've seen a lot of people lose their fancy fannies in real estate. They, they were smarter than anything else. But uh, you got to pay attention. You can scoop up some things. But in certain uh, situations, especially in Florida, we have homestead protection. That means they can't get your house. You know, if you owe some people some money, they can't get your house here where they could in some other states. Uh, so a lot of times people are taught to, if you got a bunch of cash sitting around, put it in your house. Because at least you know it's an appreciating asset instead of a depreciating asset like a car, an RV, a boat, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it's protected. It's, it's judgment creditor proof. So that's important. But that's what I mean. You got to talk to a lawyer. You got to talk to a financial person. Lots of real estate people do have this sort of sophistication, but that's not the hat they're wearing when they're dealing with you. So uh, you're not going to be able to hold them to that standard. Like uh, help me from making a bad investment deal. That's not the obligation that they owe to you. Uh, so I, I think that those are good things. Uh, also with the interest rates, you know, uh, interest rates are affecting the housing market because people can't afford as much as they used to. So they're not going to pay too much for a house. You know, we saw people paying a lot of money for some houses earlier this year and we're thinking, oh, where's the bubble? You know, this is certainly going to be a correction. 
The good thing, I think, this time is the lenders are not just blindly giving money to people who are not qualified. I think mm-hmm. that is probably mm-hmm. one of the trading parts. And it is a market correction. Right now, like you said, you used to qualify for a $200,000 house. Now you qualify for $183,000 house. So it's going to change necessarily the housing market values. I think they'll they'll adjust a little bit and maybe go down to something a little more reasonable. But remember, interest rates are going to stay here forever. I mean, they're just not. So if you can get into a house and it is a house you want, it is a good investment. You're not overpaying for it. Don't get freaked out that you got a high interest rate. You can refinance that when the interest rates go down. You can pay more toward the principal. There's a lot of things you can do. Just because you get into a mortgage today doesn't mean you're trapped to that mortgage forever. But you do have to plan and you do have to look at the numbers. There's a lot of people who buy houses they can't afford on adjustable rate interest uh, uh, mortgages thinking, oh, they'll come into a pile of money or they do a big balloon. You, know, you might want to talk about some of those things, Christique, because you can get yourself sideways in real estate. A lot of people think, oh, there's no way to lose money on it. That's not true. Um, if wow. you don't handle the financing and the financial part of it could be bad. But I, I love that Denisha asked that because this is an empower hour and empower plant production, meaning we're here to help women, primarily women and girls, people who may not have somebody they can just get a hold of to explain these sorts of things to them. That's why we bring on professionals like you uh, because, you know, a lot of times you got your dad and your husband and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, and I want to go back to what you talk about with the with the market um, yeah. fluctuation. So back in the day with the great, and you know, I cut my teeth in real estate on the great recession. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible time to be a real estate professional. It was horrible. It was, it was horrible. It was horrible um I, you know i almost I like it was bad one more time horrible <laughs> i had two people who one of my last calls i was working with the florida hardest hit um fund doing the um hardest hit assistance that the state rolled out um during that time and i had my last call was a guy who committed suicide um oh. and his neighbor who came and found him saw me. I was the last call on the phone, right? So when we talk about the social emotional um, ties to economic well-being, it's a real conversation, okay? People are fearful. This is great that we're having these conversations and we got to have more tough conversations, right, about how things are so that people's peace isn't interrupted by this foolishness, right? But the other thing about it, and what's exciting is that two things. Well, Anyway, it ain't a long enough show. But the exciting thing about this market is that we really do have a supply and demand issue. It's a real one. It's mm-hmm. exacerbated by the growth of the short-term rental market because <laughs> people own a lot of people own a lot of stuff in Tallahassee. Tallahassee has a huge number of external ownership. Huge, huge number. All of those properties that ha- that went into foreclosure, went into portfolios during the Great Recession, a lot of huge trusts and, 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 and organizational yeah. buyers have them in their portfolio. Yeah. Guess what those rents are doing right now? They're securitized on the stock market. Okay. So that means that if they're securitized on the stock market, how do you raise your value on the stock market? You perform profits over time. Oh, annually you post profits. So those rents are adjusting yearly in order to perform on the stock market. 
Also, you have this proliferation of student housing where you, if you can find a whole acre of land, you got 12 units for student, for student housing, right. right? So it's it's a different market here in Tallahassee that's got a lot of competing factors. But the exciting thing that I will say is that a lot of people, when the interest rates were hella low, they got these loans that had um, low rates in them and they were called assumable. Okay, mm-hmm. follow me here. The rates in their mortgages are assumable by another buyer, which means that when these buyers that bought back in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, because the lifespan of ownership of a house is between seven and 10 years now, when they get ready to move their life up, if they bought one of those assumable mortgages, guess what you can do if you qualify for their mortgage? Interest right now, 6% of holding, 5% holding. Their rate was 3%. Guess what right. you can do if you qualify? Snap it up. Assume their mortgage. Hmm. Nice. Okay. You can still pay what you're going to pay, but you can assume their note. Now, how you do that, that's a whole nother class, right? And a lender will have to get involved. Again, I play one on TV. But those are things that yeah. people need to understand when you're buying a house. You need to be asking these questions. Hey, do you have an assumable yeah. mortgage? And yeah. if it's an FHA loan that was originated between 2017 and 2020, more than likely it has assumability clause. Or 2021, it has an assumability clause in it. Ask those wow. questions. Have Nobody, real I didn't know that. that I didn't know that. And that could be a huge thing. Think about the difference between a 3% and a 6% loan. That's That's substantial. In terms of what your monthly payment will be and what you can qualify for, that is a great thing. I want to follow up on what you just said about all of the rentals. I've learned this recently. There are so much unoccupied space in America that is owned by foreign people. They will come mm-hmm. in and just build, buy up floors and floors and buildings and buildings. And a lot of times they just sit there because they're just parking money. They're not trying to make money off of it. They're kind of just parking the money. And so we need that housing. There's a huge need for affordable housing. People are sitting on it. I personally had to kind of check myself on this because I buy condos and stuff like that that I can rent. And my my person who manages it, she, she comes up to me and she's like, you know, you can get such and such percent more because there's such a squeeze on this market right now. And of course the business side of you wants to go, hell yeah. I mean, that's an investment. It's a performing Mm -hmm. asset. The other side of me wants to go, am I part of the problem? Am I, you know, perpetuating this lack of affordable housing? So um, I don't know how to break that out. I mean, that's one thing we value in America is our private property. We don't tell people what to do with it. Uh, I also want to ask your question about this, all this student housing, because here's, here's the way my mind is thinking. It costs so much. Student debt is unaffordable right now. And so much of it is because they live off of a credit card while they're getting their education. It's not necessarily tuition that is, is running them out. It's having to pay for those houses and stuff. And those places they live in are nicer than I lived in way out of college for a minute. I mean, these oh. are the art, art, stainless, you know, exercise, equipment, spas, you know, just everything you can imagine. And so I thought, well, if people realize that if they can get their college education online from wherever they are, it's going to you know, it's going to save them money and make college more affordable. And then fewer people be coming to campuses and needing all those houses. So mm-hmm. what do we do in, you know, let's say 10 years when there's a glut on the market of these monster, you know, four bedroom houses with a common kitchen and a bathroom in every room? Are we all going to be golden girls and live there with our, <laughs> our what's the plan? Oh, I'm okay. it, but 
I don't know if I can talk anybody else into it. <laughs> well, let's let's go back pre-COVID where there was just this real, and thank you for bringing up um, <laughs> earlier about kind of the, the push and pull of personal philosophy in terms of investment, right? Because my, my own philosophy is that I hope that investment would be really local. Um, mm-hmm. We have to buy our own stuff here. We need, when stuff comes on the market, local people need to be buying it. For that reason, we can't afford to have absenteeism and ownership because we see what that does in terms of how it looks, beautification, the cost of that, the devaluation it brings to the areas. And I'm not saying it's that all of them do that. I'm just saying that it is a thing. Um, I also want to say this. There was a conversation back in 2016, 2015. It was the dumbest conference um, conversation I ever heard where they were saying, yeah, there's going to be a future where people don't want to own and they're going to want to just rent and they're just going to want a cubbyhole to put their stuff and, you know, and, and live, work and play outside. Yeah. First of all, this is Florida. If you're a Floridian, you got a house with some air conditioning in it and it's your house. All right. And so I think that, again, it speaks to this kind of local culturalism that needs to pre- take predominance over national trend because national trend is really informed by metro markets, right? We're not a high metro market, right? It may be that way. That might be the culture in larger markets like uh, Atlanta or like Washington, D.C. or New York City, where they have over a million people. But this whole MSA here in Leon County, what they call the market service area, is only 394,000 people. The per acre capita, I think here, ranges between one to three acres per capita because it's so much land here in this area. And so it's it's just different culturally. It's different mentally, right? So I don't know. They, and they've tried the eight beds on each, the, the four beds on each side with the shared common air. It's a mess. Nobody lives like that. And yeah. in the in the in the in the wake of COVID, nobody should live like that, right? <laughs> nobody should live like that. So we kind of have to look at it from a public health standpoint. Yeah. We have to look at it from a cultural standpoint. And really understand that the 25 or so calls I get every day from students, they're looking for somewhere to live. They're looking for an apartment that they can either share with a friend or they're looking for a house that they can house their family. And and the crunch here comes to the fact that we just, it's not attainable affordability wise. We have the highest I've ever seen of market-based homelessness in our community. I get a call, two or three calls, Every day, somebody who's about to get kicked out of where they are because the landlord wants to raise the rents higher than they can afford and put it back on the market for rent because the supply and demand is there. And I don't mean $100. The last one I I figured out was $500 they were raising the rent. But it was under-rented for years, and they've had this agreement since 2007, right? And so now they're leaving. And the place was severely under-rented. So $500 is a lot of money if you base your standard of living on a 2007, 2008 rent. And so there's just a whole lot of lot of things that we're going to have to angle. But to your point, Dana, I don't ever think in Florida, particularly in North Florida, and metro markets that are similar to ours, Lakeland, um, and some of the little outlets down south, we're ever going to get to the point where we're okay with four people uh, separately living in the house. And we locally have rooming house ordinances that speak to protection of neighborhoods because there is a safety factor there, right? 
when you talk about trying to make sure that you have background checks, making sure who's living in your neighborhood. Now more than ever, it is so important to know who your neighbors are. Um, and we need to have systems in place to protect the public interest and to pr protect the, the safety of our neighborhoods and neighbors. So um, I think that people will continue to live in the housing systems that are traditional. We just got to figure out how to make them affordable and attainable. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting ready to do our last roundup before we close. You've been uh, super informative, man. I've learned <laughs> stuff and, I, and I'm so glad I have this panel because I wouldn't have thought to ask you some of the things that have come. <laughs> so I, I want to thank our panel guests and I want to start with Kimmy Hogan as we wrap up today. Uh, Kimmy, what are your final thoughts and questions? Hey, thanks so much for being with us. Um, yes. I wanted to see if you had any advice for people who haven't purchased their first home yet. You know, what, what would you recommend as they are looking to make that decision? You know, the most important thing about home purchasing is just to make sure that you understand what that means. Um, the transition mindset from renter to owner, if you are a first generational home buyer, it's a really big leap. Um, the transition from renter to homeowner, if you're not, ain't that big a leap because you've seen grandma do it, you've seen mama do it, you've seen daddy do it. Um, so education is critical. Um, get educated. Make sure you have at least three times what you would need to make the transaction happen. You need about five to seven thousand dollars in the bank. You and and really, you know, you want to have that anyway for finance. You want to have ten thousand dollars somewhere dedicated to this purpose, even if you don't use the whole ten. Right? You want to have it somewhere. You want to make sure that you don't co-sign for anybody. Don't. <laughs> Co-sign oh, for man. people. Totally. Don't. Don't. <laughs> don't. You know, to me, just buy it your damn self. Buy it for them. But don't co-sign. <laughs> Boy, if they can't get it and they can't afford it, then don't get it for them. You know, no, no. If the bank yeah. doesn't trust them, why do you? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's my last <laughs> advice right now. Don't, don't co-sign for people. And most importantly, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this because this is one transaction that I will never recover from. Don't go buy you a new car before you go buy you a new house. Like um, a month before you buy a new house. Dude, anything, furniture, nothing. Anything. Don't, don't buy nothing. Get your house first. Get that house closed. Yes. <laughs> Get that house closed. Well, my friend, my friend, I got to tell you, this, my girlfriend, <laughs> she and her husband were just really cutting it tight to sell out of one house to get the proceeds to get into another house, dream house type of thing. They're they're killing it, man. You know, you got to show where your money is, how long you've had that money in your account. Mm -hmm. It's a whole thing to close on a house now. Yeah. And her husband comes home and goes, I decided to quit my job and start a landscape company but I think we'll be okay because of unemployment. <laughs> You're about two weeks from closing. Oh no. And I'm wow. like, if she, if she literally just lost it and killed them, she would get a jury pardon. Yeah. No one would have put her mm. in jail. No one would have put her in jail. She's like, opinion. Yeah, you would have been on unemployment side. from quitting your job. <laughs> I am really reconsidering marrying you, not just buying this house with you. This well, is a bad day for me. No, 
No, you got to you got to have it together. You understand understand the rules. They're looking at how much money you have, how responsible you are. You got to look at you know is it thirty something percent of your income? Is the payment so much percent of your yada yada? You know, even if you can afford the house plus the car payment and the furniture payment, all that kind of stuff. Wait, man, keep right. your numbers right. right. Get through this damn closing. It's only taking four weeks out of your life. You can't keep it together for four weeks. Maybe you don't need to be a homeowner. <laughs> Denisha. <laughs> yes. Save this conversation before I get too upset. The whole thing. <laughs> okay, on the lighter note, on the um on the realty side, uh, my boys, when I bought my home, they told me that I shouldn't put them on the um on the deed because uh, they was they, uh, they was getting their they are assisted Medicaid and stuff. And so they was like, they're the mess of their assistance. So being that they're 21 and 19 now, should I add them on to make sure that if something happens to me, nobody can take this from them? Do you, re- do you recommend that? How, you know, how should we do that? Okay. So that's another thing where I will say that I'm not an attorney. I play one on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, gotcha. get to a that that, that is a legal purely legal conversation now 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 let me just tell you a little story because i got a million of them (laughs) i was in a in a closing where there were siblings and the mother died and it passed on to them in probate you know yada 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 well the one two siblings you know were in and out of criminal situations and you know you have to pay what restitution all right. And I'm not saying these your turn because you probably beat them down and whatever, but you just <laughs> never know. Right. What right, people are going right. to do. And so mm-hmm. when it came to them closing, they didn't get any money. And the rest of the siblings got money. It caused like World War Two in the in the, mm-hmm. in the closing room because they mm-hmm. had to pay off that restitution. Right. So I mm-hmm. say this to say, as your kids live their life and make their decisions, um, that can impact your ownership yeah. if their name is on your deed. Yeah, ah, Denise, yeah. Gotcha. It, it will change. It will change the quality of the ownership. How you own the home. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I own, I own a piece of property with my daughter. Okay, and we're mm-hmm. tenants in common. Then, meaning, if somebody needed her to pay some debt that she owed, she could either tell me mm. you got to buy me out of this house so I can get my share to pay these people I owe, or I'm going to force a sale. And mm-hmm. you get your half of it or whatever wow. the percentage is, but I got to get my half. Mm-hmm. To pay. See, she can't do that mm-hmm. to me because I own my house myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a right. Simple, I own it by myself. Nobody else is on the title. So they can't make me do nothing. And like I said, it's, right. it's a homestead of protection. So it's a very, very huge, important thing. And even whenever you feel like you're getting, you know, toward the end of your life, my grandmother did this. And so she wanted to give it to a certain people. So she put two people on the title. Terrible, terrible idea. Those two got to get along. And if they don't get along, they can do right. that other what I just described. So no, no, no. There's a whole lot of other ways to, to do some estate planning that takes care of the things gotcha. you're concerned about that don't mm-hmm. mess up your ownership of your home. So I'll let you tell me. Yeah. Yeah. It's an important conversation, right? Because, you know, people make financial decisions all the time. And when courts and attorneys are looking for lines of um, restitution, if they're looking for something to sue or somebody to sue or an asset to name, Mm -hmm. your own free and clear house could become that asset. Yeah, and you, so don't, you don't want to do that. You don't, you don't want to do that. And so there's a lot of instruments that protect, just like Dana said, it's an attorney 
conversation. That is not a barbershop conversation by any means. Sit down and I would encourage everybody, don't be sitting around talking to your homegirl or your homeboy about mm -hmm. this. You need to sit down and talk right. to a lawyer yeah. um, that understands that type of planning so that you can put the proper instruments in place. And if something happens to you, you can transition well and your children inherit the full value of your estate. Yeah, without any conversation. Kia, finish this up. Well, as they all say, we just want to say thank you for your comeback story, comeback stronger story. We truly appreciate that. That gave people a lot of different insight on how to handle um, all your many ebooks and trainings that can come from all of this that you have provided us. <laughs> but we know there's going to be an eight hour training sooner or later on everything as you threw that out there. That was great. Um, your servant leadership and then your communitarian advocacy. So I, I thank you for giving us all of that. But I also want to ask you, what do you think makes a stronger community? Great question. That is a good, 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 good question. I think we have to decide on the individual level where the love is. And we have to work our gifts where the love is. And once we are all focused on working where the love is, collectively, we create the magic. My strength has been my love of neighborhoods, particularly Tallahassee Southside. I love this area. There is no doubt when anybody meets me that I love this area. I know it. I know its statistics. I know its areas. If I don't know it, I'm going to explore it. If I can celebrate it, I will. I invest in it. I try to make sure I curate opportunities in it. I love Tallahassee Southside as a communitarian, as you would say. And so I try to bring my A game. I try to bring the thought leadership of others into play where I don't know things. That's love. Love is practicing in your space of gift, but it's also making room for the gifts of others and knowing as we encourage one another, as we share, as we empower, as we strengthen, as we create opportunity, that has a ripple effect. And it creates this thing called value. And let me bring it back home. You buy a house from somebody that is well-loved, is well-kept, is well-cleaned, is well-manicured. You buy that house for the value that person is selling it because you perceive there's love and there's value there. So when we clue into the love and the value and we work our spaces collectively and individually so that the picture of love is apparent, then we will experience collective value. But if we continue to rancor and tear and to, to destroy and to, to divide and to be divisive, people won't see value here. They'll see chaos. They'll see all this dissonance. And that doesn't lend to a mindset of value. It leads to a mindset of opportunity. How can I use this chaos to my advantage? And that is where I hope as a community, we will get to, we will hold leadership accountable, those who hope to lead accountable, and that we will create leaders that love, or we elect leaders that we can see, not just want to lead our community, but they want to lead our community through love. That's where I see the future, and, and I'm prayerful and hopeful that that is a future that Tallahassee can have. That's phenomenal. I knew you would be. Uh, I just want to thank you. I've met you, uh, I think the first time I met you, it's a political thing. You and I were both helping somebody get elected. It was, it was a woman. It had to be <laughs> if I was there, but uh, not really, but we were, and I just, I loved your energy. 
And I, and I know the people you hang around with and I have so much respect for them. So I've loved following you. I love uh, seeing you on social media. I love seeing you active and I hear, and I see you quoted in the Democrat, our local newspaper a lot. You, you really do walk your talk and you really do love the, the community you live and work in and care so much about it shows and everything that you do. And I'm so grateful that you uh, made an hour for us today. So thank you, the unique Christique. Henry, president of Kingdom Realty, for being with us here today to talk about all things realty, all things Southside, all, all things Tallahassee community. So thank you again. Thank you to our panel members. And we hope you will join us again next Thursday at 4.30 Facebook Live on the Empower Plant for another episode of the Empower Hour. You all have a great Empowered Week. And Absolutely. we'll see you. Thank you, ladies. Bye. Bye.